It's the DEH Podcast, episode number 134. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And that would make me Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. Well, it wouldn't necessarily make you Gary, but, no, but there you are. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the other one. <laughs> the other uh, one. Yes. Um, so there's been an interesting story in the news for the past couple of weeks that we thought we would spend a few minutes talking about. Yeah. Um, and it has to do, of all things, with oil. <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of. Kind of. Kind of has to do with oil. Well, it definitely has to do with oil and uh, hoarding and some amazing um, uh, hoarding practices by people that just just scare the bejesus out of me. Um, you know, the folks who have been uh, basically hoarding gasoline in bags. Uh, that was fake. There was at least one that was fake. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was fake in the sense of the timing, but apparently it was not fake in the sense of the intent. Apparently it was goes back to 2019, some other similar scenario where there was a potential gas shortage and this person was uh, pumping a large plastic shopping bag full of gasoline. Yeah. Well, there's there's the, the fake ones, the old ones or the ones that are not even from the United States, you know, the pictures yes. that they're showing. And then there's also the people that, they're doing it for Instagram, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're not necessarily like, oh, we better fill up our, you know, we have a gas canister. We better fill it up because I'm really seriously concerned about running out of gas. It's right. like, oh, this would make a nice Instagram shot since we're here at the pump anyway. And it's in the news, you know, I'm going to get a few extra likes for this. So, you know, there's a lot of that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably right. You're probably right. But um, anyway, what this all boils down to, if you haven't mm -hmm. gathered yet, is we are talking about the uh, colonial pipeline ransomware attack of a couple of weeks ago. Yep. Um, they apparently, the, uh, the organization that runs this pipeline, which actually travels a fair distance along the East Coast, I really had no idea that it existed, uh, was um, hacked. They, well, I should say hacked. They fell victim to ransomware which means that some apparently some important component of their infrastructure were, were A, running on PCs, and B, those PCs somehow got infected with malware that turns out to be ransomware that encrypted some apparently very important files. Yes, but one of the things in trying to you know research a little further, since we'd be talking about this today, was that it doesn't appear that any part of the ransomware attack actually stopped the pipeline. They stopped the pipeline for fear that some of the information that was stolen could potentially uh, have been used for an attack. So in other words, as a precaution, they shut it down. Out of an abundance of caution yeah. is, so, the, is the buzzword this year. Yeah. And and the and also the other thing I read that I didn't know just by listening to like, you know, watching news on TV and things was that the information stolen was kind of a separate attack or a separate part of the same attack. The information was stolen on one day and on another day, the ransomware uh, was installed, uh, you know, asking them to pay up. So two separate things. Interesting um, because I was unaware that there was actually data theft involved. All of the news yeah. focused on, you know, ransomware, scary, scary ransomware, shutting down the pipeline. And that's apparently yeah. not exactly the case. No, I mean, in hosp hospitals that have been shut down in the past have actually, you know, their computers, they've been locked out of their computers. You know, yes. they can't get into their systems. Yes. And it really, the headlines made me believe that that was what was happening here. And it wasn't the case. They could have chosen uh, at some risk 
uh, possibly, uh, to just keep the pipeline flowing the entire time. Well, what's that risk, though? That's the part that I'm not quite sure I yeah, understand. I mean, I shutting down the pipeline for, you know, out of caution. Okay, I get that. That makes sense. It would have been nice had they actually said that. But um, what are they afraid of? What is it that, uh, yeah. that you know, these individuals who apparently gained access to data and, and plant, then planted ransomware, um, what is it that they could have gotten into that would have potentially caused a problem? I mean, I suppose I, this is just a wild guess based on, you know, okay, it's a pipeline, there's oil flowing through it. Um, maybe there's some information there that they thought, well, somebody could take this information and shut down things that then would have caused uh you know a catastrophe like you know the pipeline rupturing or or getting overloaded or something in a spot you know and they they figured the safe thing to do was to shut it down that's the only thing i can think of is you know it's funny because i i i know that that's a common threat or i'm yeah. sorry a common fear uh, certainly with the, with respect to the electrical grid and potentially with respect to other forms of of infrastructure but I have to hope at least that those critical points where, say, uh, I don't know, you know, bypassing some kind of pressure regulator and allowing things to go too high, that there be some kind of fallback, that there be some kind of additional, yeah. you know, prevention that uh, honestly predates the technology that's hooking it all together these days, right? I mean, this is this. Yeah, these are all things that, that you know, overpressure explosions and that kind of stuff. These are not new. They're not related to necessarily to the technology that we're happening to happening to use to monitor them or even control them. So I just have to wonder. Um, now, on the other hand, certainly they could have "quote unquote" upgraded their safety system so that maybe the pressure sensor that detects when the pressure is too high is connected up to a PC directly, and it's that <laughs> PC's job to interpret the readings. And of course, if that PC isn't working, then the readings don't get interpreted. But um, that seems like a a particularly fragile design uh, for something that potentially critical. Yeah, I could just see uh, you know old PC and Clippy comes up. And says, are you sure you want to overload the pressure on this valve? I see you're trying to create a catastrophe. Would you like me to help? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and also, let's remember that, you know, there were two shutting down the pipeline apparently didn't really cause any kind of shortage. Right. There was exactly. enough oil available along the route that everybody was perfectly fine, you know, and it was only because people were hoarding and all that, that there was a problem. So, you know, perhaps they said, oh, you know what, we could shut down this pipeline for a week, no problem. So let's do that since, you know, we're ahead, you know, in terms of right. you know, where they all need to go. So why not let's do that out of caution? And then, you know, then people, you know, the media grabbed it and people blew it out of proportion. And then there was hoarding anyway. And then you had Florida declare a state of emergency, even though the pipeline doesn't go to Florida for right. some reason. It, it just, <laughs> I, I don't really know, but you know, Florida has got to be Florida, I guess. Florida is Florida. Yep. And, uh, and, you know, so stuff like that. The other interesting thing uh, about this story that wasn't reported very much was, you know, you read this and you think, Ooh, Ooh, I hope I can't, can't somebody do something to stop them? Apparently, they did, <laughs> because even though it's not in a lot of the big articles, this article in Slate talks about the fact that the the uh, group that did this hack and, and saw the ransomware has had to shut down because its infrastructure and cryptocurrency accounts have been shut down. Interesting, because so, I heard that they had shut down because 
they just felt guilty or just decided decided <laughs> well, they to said quit. that too they, they said got their, that they got the five yeah. million and they left right yeah so well we don't know if they got the five million because the, the way the article says it, it it makes you think okay somebody shut down some infrastructure and and somebody shut down their accounts uh we don't know who probably isn't you know just an individual that was like oh i can fix this it probably was government intelligence agencies that are not interested in uh then advertising what they did <laughs> right yeah um, yep. and we don't know what government i mean good or a combination of them or you know an interpol type of situation we don't know and they're probably not going to go out and show their hand and say look what we did uh but it does look like this group uh it did not uh you know, didn't get away with it. In other words, it's interesting. So. so one of the the misconceptions I think about cryptocurrencies, especially Bitcoin, um, is that they are inherently anonymous. Mm. They are inherently anonymous if they're done right. Uh, yeah. If you use it the correct way, uh, it's also fairly easy for it not to be necessarily anonymous yeah. because all of the transactions, I mean, literally every transaction since the very first one is visible on uh, the Bitcoin blockchain or whatever cryptocurrency you happen to be using. Uh, what keeps it anonymous is that the identifiers can have nothing to do with you, right? There, you, yeah. We know who bought the first Bitcoin, uh, you know, not because the identifier in the blockchain says it was Joe Blow or, or Satoshi or whoever it was, mm. uh, but rather because we know to associate that particular ID with him. If you take care to um, never allow an association to be created, then uh, you can, of course, be anonymous. But simple things like you know setting up an account at Coinbase yeah. Well, you know what? We know who you are. I mean, yeah. all the transactions can be traced back to you one way or another. It may not be public information, but it may be information that can be right. uh, at some point accessed by the appropriate authorities. Uh, so doing doing truly fully anonymous cryptocurrency correctly uh, is easy to get wrong. And I wonder if that's the kind of a thing that was at play here as well. Yeah. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, that could all sorts of uh, tools are available to the intelligence community that could have uh, spelled the end for this group, or they could have just gotten frightened by the whole thing and decided to disband. It's interesting because um, one of the other things we don't know, and this is actually fairly true for almost every um, ransomware infection that we hear, is that Somebody's at my door. I don't know if you heard Alexa just announced a door a doorbell oh. for me. Um, the uh, the one thing that is um, unclear is if the attack was actually targeted. When you yeah. think about malware, malware certainly it can be targeted. You can do what's called spear phishing and go after individuals at particular companies or individuals or particular individuals that you know of, whatever. But so much malware is truly shotgun around the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a result, the 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 hackers, the, the folks behind it, they collect money from whoever they happen to catch, not because they were targeting that particular person, but because that's the particular person that happened to bite. And you also have to wonder then when it comes to an organization like uh, the Colonial Pipeline, you know, were they targeted? Seems unlikely. There might have been bigger targets out there, uh, you know, more more lucrative targets out there. 
And honestly, all it really takes is one person in a back room uh, to mistakenly click on a phishing link to that oh, sure. you know, could then you know cause the malware to be uh, uh, to be installed and the ransomware to take effect. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest vulnerabilities for ransomware is when you ha- the organization is just big enough that there are a whole bunch of people that have to have a computer access to important things. And not all of those people are trained uh, in security. Right. So you've got that vulnerability there. I think at some point, the company's so big that you, most people don't have access to the critical systems and the ones that do are well-trained. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, if an organization is very small, it's very hard to find one individual that's going to do something stupid. But just the right size with just the right amount of money and, and you can get just that one person to you know, download that piece of software or click on that link or, or whatever it was uh, and, and make that mistake and you end up with a situation like this. Um, the Another thing that is interesting here is um, the idea of the word ethics <laughs> coming into play. Yeah. Because this group, they're called Darkside, we're called, we're called that at least, um, they claim to have a code of ethics, which is not typical for ransomware operators, right? Ransomware operators don't really care in the most part. There's been plenty of hospitals shut down, for instance, Um, things like that. There were plenty of places that, you know, uh, small organizations that, you know, don't have the resources to fight this that have been shut down. They claim, though, that they don't want to hurt anybody in that kind of thing, you know, avoid hospitals and such, and also avoid governments and politics altogether. Um, So they were going after targets that uh, maybe something like a oil pipeline that nobody's ever heard of before um, seemed like might fit the, you know, fit the bill there. And of course, it turns out they bit off a little more than they can chew. But it is interesting to think, you know, we always think of uh, ethics and, you know, you shouldn't do certain things um, as being universal. But of course, they're not. You could have your own code of ethics that don't, you know, are completely different than mine. Um, And if you're a hacker group and you want to have a code of ethics, it says, Hey, we're going to steal money from people, but not these people. <laughs> Only well, these people, you know. It, it's funny because that actually dovetails into um, a link I added from uh, KrebsOnSecurity.com. It'll mm-hmm. be in the show notes. But um, as he, he puts it, try this one weird trick Russian hackers hate. What it boils down to is part of their ethics is um, not to uh, infect their countrymen. Mm. And the way that apparently some amount of malware is written that comes out of uh, Eastern Europe and and Russia is that it checks to see if you have any of a number of Russian or Cyrillic languages installed on your PC. And if you do, then the malware does nothing. So the the quote-unquote one weird trick that Krebs is talking about uh, is, okay, yeah, go ahead and install Russian, the Russian language pack on your PC. Uh, you can have it installed. You don't have to look at it. You don't have to use it. You can have multiple languages installed on the PC and, and switch between them. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to be using it. And apparently, that'll stop some subset of malware and ransomware yeah. that's out there because they are afraid of causing grief in their own country. So they tried to sidestep the issue, which I thought was hilarious. My concern about this as a quote unquote security trip is that, um, um, of course, 
now that it's more widely known, uh, you know, you don't get much more, much more broadly known in the security community than appearing on Cribs on Security. Uh, they're probably going to stop doing that if, if enough people, you know, start installing Russian or Cyrillic or whatever other language they feel like installing on their machine. Uh, yeah, I just, I just thought that that was fairly interesting, but it also, it's another example of, I'm not sure I want to call it ethics, but in a way it sort of is right. It's, it's, we don't yeah. want to hurt, we don't want to harm our countrymen. Yep. I, I find this, this whole thing fascinating. Just thinking about, you know, what they, with rules. I mean, if they have rules, you know, you think, you think the absence of rules, you think chaos and all of that, but you know, there, there are rules in every system. Uh, any group of people that comes together, no matter how, what they plan to do is going to set up some sort of rules. And, and there's this group did and other groups may as well. Um, I guess there's the Robin hood kind of thing too. Right, Robin Hood. Robin Hood taken as a, uh, I guess, uh, what's the right thing? You know, using that as a name that can be applied in different stories and different situations. A Robin Hood, not the Robin Hood. Uh, (laughs) A Robin Hood is basically uh, committing crimes that things that are definitely illegal, but doing them in such a way that other people won't mind as much. You know, uh, and a lot of criminals have acted over the years with you know trying to be a robin hood you know certainly the mobsters of the early 20th century in uh the united states operated on this principle right the everyday you know uh blue collar workers weren't going to be targeted by the mobsters you know they were going to make make it cheap booze available things like that you know so so you had a large portion of the population that didn't mind the mob operating in their neighborhood because they actually made things better you know um you even had you know old west uh you know heroes like billy the kid who you know was a total criminal but tried to spread this mythology of a robin hood and now you have uh maybe the same thing with uh, malicious hackers saying okay we're not we're, we're only going to rob the kind of decadent rich you know the oil companies and the you know the corrupt politicians and all of that and we're kind of like a robin hood so i'll i'll i'll, I'll would actually call that half of a robin hood because to yeah. me robin hood means both stealing from the rich but also giving to the giving poor to the and poor, i don't yeah. necessarily see any <laughs> of these organizations doing that yeah. uh, it's not until they start you know committing say a percentage of their take um, that they uh, that they might uh, fall into that category for me, uh, but yeah, that's Good that point. is true. Uh, so I I've, I meant I asked this before, but th- before we started recording, but your Mac, you're not yeah. running into a lot of these scenarios on your platforms or from your readers, are you? No, I'm not getting uh, asked that much. I, I think. I think you know ransomware definitely seems to be more of a problem in the PC world than the Mac world, and I don't think it necessarily has to do anything with the security software itself right. or the operating systems themselves. It may have to do with more of a cultural thing, because like you know, if this colonial pipeline company was running a base a network, a whole system of PCs that were in charge of all their data and the business and running the pipeline. That's just not something you see as commonly with Macs, which tend to be more of an individual machine. Ah, okay. Yeah. You know, you see Makes what I'm sense. saying? Like, yep. this is more like, okay, everyone's got their own Mac. You're a graphic artist, you're a programmer, and, you know, you're the IT guy, you're the, you know, the social media guy. You know, we have this company and we're doing this stuff. 
computers aren't working together in a system like they would in you know something like the you know hospital system for instance right, right. and maybe you know, a big ransomware attack isn't going to just be one computer you certainly have ransomware that affects one computer right but these big ones that we hear about on the news you know they're not talking about somebody's right. pc or somebody's mac got infected they're talking about a company has shut down or hospitals shut down i wonder if how many of those companies have have adopted what what we often used to refer to as a thin client model i know that uh, like when i go to the doctor and mm. i'm in the i'm in the, the exam room there's a pc there i mean it is literally a pc in fact i think yeah. it's a dell but it is very small and it's just got a screen and you can tell that 90% of what the doctor is doing with it is not actually happening on the PC. Mm, the PC yeah. is a glorified nowadays web browser, you know, something to put a web browser on, yeah. <laughs> right? And then all of the work gets done on, you know, central servers and a data center probably, you know, miles and miles away. Uh, but that does mean that this inexpensive PC which, like I said, if it's a thin client, PCs are going to be fairly inexpensive in comparison. Um, yeah, it's vulnerable in the sense that since most malware, since most ransomware is written for PCs, and you've got one in every exam room and on the desks of all the, you know, everybody in the facility, then yeah, it can still be pretty damaging to have a ransomware infection throughout an organization. It can be absolutely massive, even if it doesn't touch any of the central machines. Right. I mean, there's a bit of a wall that that thin client wall to get through. I mean, if something would infect one PC or one Mac that was then going to that system, right? Um, what they could, the thing that they could get was, is your password to that system, right? So, you know, a doctor has a, has a PC or a Mac, they get infected with something because they installed something they shouldn't. Um, that thing listens for passwords. It's doing a key logger where it's seeing what keys you're typing. Mm -hmm. And it says, ah, now I have access to this big hospital system. Right. Um, just because I have a user ID and a password. However, if things are implemented correctly, that doctor has doctor's permissions. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's nothing, you know, the doctor can get to the data. Can see all the patients, all that, but they can't really change the system. They can't install ex extensions. They can't change the settings, you know. So it would limit. It would basically stop a ransomware attack. It would certainly open uh, up to a privacy, you know, attack where they could right. get a lot of user data, but they wouldn't be able to get past the uh, th that you know thin client layer to actually changing the system and locking everything up. Um, I guess uh, we should know that there, I mean, there are various types of ransomware attacks, right? There's the attacks that uh, basically steal data and try to ransom the data back to you. We, we won't make this public if you give us money. Um, there are ones that lock you out of your machine. There are ones that worse encrypt the data on your machine and, uh, you know, ransom the key back to you, which is actually what happened here, uh, at least part of the attack here on the pipeline was they encrypted a bunch of data. They did, and the okay. funny thing was, is they paid, you know, they paid the ransom um, at $5 million in, in Bitcoin, I think it was. And they got the, they were actually given the tool, which mostly is probably just the key to decrypt it. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were actually given the tool back to decrypt it, but the decryption was so slow <laughs> that <laughs> it, it, they actually went to, it sounds like a backup. I heard something instead, about a backup. Yes, yes. So they paid money and found out, well, we should have just used the backup instead. 
uh, all along, but you know, which may may be more of a commentary on how much money there actually is in oil that they were like, oh, five million. Okay, yeah. we'll Pocket pay change. that. Yeah. <laughs> that we have a, that in the sofa. Pay that, and like, oh, that's not working. All right, eh, forget that. We'll just do the backup. Right. Um, but you know, there and then there's all sorts of other various kinds. You know, there's the kind that would simply just install malware on your computer, make it difficult to use or show ads or whatever until you paid the the ransom. Um, there's ticking time bomb ones too that will destroy your data. You know, if you don't enter the uh, the correct code in time, mm-hmm. and then probably I, you know, I don't know if anybody's uh, actually calculated the statistics on this, but I would guess the most common one would be fake ransomware, <laughs> where you basically are told ransomware has been installed on your computer and something nasty is going to happen unless you pay up. But in fact, nothing has been done to your computer. It's right. either a fake ad or just some simple malware that you really don't need to pay anybody to get rid of. You can just run anti-malware software or know where to go to uninstall it. And two reasons why I think that's the most prevalent. One is because I'm sure a lot of people don't know enough to check to see whether it's real or not mm-hmm. and simply either pay the ransom or wipe the machine and move on. Uh, and the other thing is it probably a large enough percentage of people will pay the ransoms on fake ransomware that why bother actually doing the work? Right. It's much easier. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's much you, simpler malware to create. I mean, in fact, you tell a million people that you've got, ma- you've got ransomware and if, you know, 10,000 of them pay you money. Okay, great. I didn't have to do really any work except send this message out. And, you know, whereas the other way would have been to create this entire encryption process with a key and and Bitcoin this and, uh, you know, would have been this whole deal. But that whole concept of fake malware is not new. That's been around for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, even especially with uh, websites that have been compromised, many of them are compromised simply to present a message box that looks like a, as close as possible to a system message box, except of course it's not, it's just coming from that website that says, hey, you've got malware, you need to do this. You know, you're, the, there's a, a security alert kind of a pop-up and, you know, instructing people to go buy this software, to download it, to basically remove the malware that was never really there in the first place. So yeah, faking it out is is not that uncommon. Honestly, I've not heard uh, percentages. I couldn't tell you just how common fake ransomware really is. I don't yeah. doubt that it exists, but I have a hard time uh, coming up with even a, a, any kind of a qualified guess for just how much of the uh, how much of it is out there. I think it's probably be difficult to get any real stats because uh, so much ransomware goes unreported. Yep. Um, people people are embarrassed. It's really frustrating yeah. from a from a security perspective because people are embarrassed by it, and honestly, they shouldn't be. Uh, the most important thing you can do if you become the victim of ransomware is, of course, learn. I mean, understand what happened, but then share your knowledge. Right? Share the experience so that other people don't have to fall victims as well. It's it's unfortunate, and you know, as much as you and I try and help and, and preach good security and, and here's what you need to do and here's when it's too late, which is another important point to, to be able to understand. Um, you know, sharing everybody's story that says, you know what, you don't have to be, you know, totally illiterate to have this stuff happen to you. It happens to the best of us. Take a look at these companies that it's happening to. Yeah. You're not stupid people that are, you know, behind the screens. Uh, it just, it just takes a well-crafted email 
uh, phishing email um, and just letting your guard down for a minute. Uh, that's what the hackers are targeting these days. Uh, people across the board are the weakest link. Right. And that's how this kind of stuff is happening. Well, I think another reason it goes unreported is because when it happens to a company, um, they make a specific decision not to release that information to the public uh, right. because it will hurt their business. And some companies, it would destroy their business if they're a company that one of their main things is trust us with your information <laughs> and they find out, Oh yeah, there was a ransomware attack. Even if they fixed it, like, Oh, okay. We were able to, we didn't pay anything. And we, we were able to, you know, use a tool or we had a good backup. It was no problem. We were down for three hours. Right. You know, our security was solid. They don't want to go and tell people eh, we were down for three hours because we were attacked. They rather people think that just it never happens. The one so that, I, that. that I love, um, so there are now insurance companies that will sell you uh, ransomware yeah. insurance, which is fine. I mean, that is indeed an incentive not to uh, report the fact that you got hit publicly. You keep it private between yourself and your insurance company. But apparently what some of the uh, hackers, the ransomware purveyors are doing is they are now targeting the insurance companies oh. in two different ways. One is they get to find out who's got the insurance so that they know these people are likely to pay. And then, of course, there's just hacking and the, the insurance company itself because, you know, they're they're working to, uh, uh, you know, do what they can to make ransomware go away. So I just thought it was kind of funny that the people that are trying to protect companies or provide aid to companies are themselves becoming targeted victims in this whole scenario. Now, that makes sense. Now, I have a question for you, something I, an idea I've kind of been thinking about is it seems like one way to stop uh, ransomware would be if the government, uh, you know, assume, let's assume the United States government, but the EU as well, if they simply passed a law making it illegal to pay a ransomware ransom. And so in other words, like if you somebody said $5 million or, you know, your computers are dead or whatever, um, if he said, well, uh, we'd pay the five million, but we'd then be in violation of this law. It's going to cost us a lot more than five million dollars. Um, so no, everybody basically has to stop paying it. Seems to me that would put a stop to ransomware, wouldn't it? I mean, no ransoms could be paid then. And then you'd end up with no point so, to ransomware. So in theory... Yeah, you're absolutely correct. If if ransomware couldn't get ransom, there wouldn't be any more ransomware. Yeah, that part's easy. It's the nobody would pay part that I think I take issue with, because if you're desperate, yeah, if your company faces going under unless you pay this ransom, you pay the ransom and deal with the other consequences later. At least you still have a company. Um, what is the the penalty? For paying a ran, you know, for having paid ransom, uh, is it, you know, is it on the same order of magnitude as the ransom itself? Well, yeah. great. Then the real ransom you're paying is twice what being asked, right? You pay it once to the ransomware people, then you pay it <laughs> once again to the government. Yeah. Um, there, and of course, um, you know, we didn't pay that ransom. The fact that my friend down the street happened to make a transaction on Bitcoin that happened to be the same amount as we were getting asked for, totally coincidental, <laughs> right? Yes, I mean, nothing you, to do with anything. You could do an investigation, and and you know, again, the difference between individuals being hit and say a company, 
And, you know, if the company's got, the company has bank accounts and, you know, you're, you, you can't do illegal stuff with your bank accounts. Right. So you can't break laws with, you know, you can't, but people and people do. do. I don't know. I just, right? <laughs> it seems like if you, if you had that, you might get a few companies in the middle that are in trouble. But if the eventual thing that, you know, after a year or two of that ransomware, just doesn't happen anymore. I, I just don't see, I just don't see that. I think I think the companies and even individuals are simply too incentivized to to pay the ransom yeah. and make the problem go away. One of the things that that kind of a penalty scenario would would in, would encourage is that you would now be incentivizing hiding it. Right? Yeah, you, definitely. You would be incentivizing not going public with whatever just happened. Make to that illegal too. <laughs> it's, a, it's a further penalty. <laughs> If you hide it, well, I mean, but there is something there. There might be something with, okay, here, the law is you absolutely cannot pay the ransom and hide it, right? Huge penalties for that, right? Um, and, uh, but there's a, a less of a penalty if uh, you go directly to the FBI, you know, and through the FBI, you're able to work with them and it's all done properly. Then perhaps you know the lower penalties or something like that. So you're incentivized to go and say, uh, "We really should pay this. We'll we'll pay double. We'll pay the fine." But in order to do that, we have to go with the FBI, work with them, and then we have to pay the fine. It's you know it's a technicality. But if we don't go to the FBI and then we're found out later, then we're in big trouble. Then we're banks aren't going to want to touch us, and insurance companies aren't going to want to touch us, and we're going to face. Uh, securities exchange commission charges and our stock's going to be delisted and all sorts of stuff like that. So you could kind of, maybe the solution's much more complicated than just banning the ransomware payment. You know, maybe I it's- just, I just don't think that legislation is, is the answer here. <laughs> I really don't think yeah. this is something you can legislate away. If you could legislate away crime, we would have no crime. Yeah. But that's not the way people work. That's not the way companies work. Uh, they, uh, and it runs the range, right? There are obviously, there are going to be companies that will follow the letter of the law always, just as there are people that are, that will do that always, right. even to their own, uh, you know, detriment. If that means that their company is going to fold and go away, well, that's what happens, but we followed the law. On the other, on the other extreme, of course, are folks that just don't care, right? They're just yeah. going to do what they think is the right thing to do in the moment, and um, to heck with you and your rules. In the middle, it gets interesting because you've got a combination of folks that are trying to make really, really hard decisions about what's really in the best interest for my company. I've got this short-term problem; it's staring me in the face. And yes, there's this threat of legal action later, but, but, but. So I just don't think um, it's it's. Uh, something that is going to make ransomware go away. Now, what I do think is valuable would be things like uh, mandatory uh, disclosure of security events. Mm, yeah, uh, not necessarily even limited to ransomware, but anything that has a potential of affecting the information uh, of a, that a company has on other companies or its, its consumers or whatever. Uh, anything that involves any kind of a risk of privacy breaching uh, should absolutely be required to be disclosed, and probably for good measure, uh, a, 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 
I'm not even sure what you want to call it, but a plan for, okay, this is what we learned and this is what we're changing so that this never, ever happens again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those kinds of scenarios so that not only are we being public about this happening, but we're being public about the kinds of things that need to fix it, you know, that need to avoid it in the future. And all the other security professionals, all the other companies all have an opportunity to learn from everyone else's mistakes. So hopefully there will be fewer of them in the future. Hopefully, you know, that sounds like something the insurance companies, the ones that are adding on ransomware insurance, it sounds like if if they were really proactive, one of the things they would do is is have a review of your security practices. So say you're a, a medium-sized business, you have 50 employees mm-hmm. and you go and you say, you know, they go and say, oh, there should be, you should, guys should get ransomware insurance just in case it's going to cost this much. And you're like, oh yeah, let's do that. And they said, okay, as part of that, yes, we're going to send somebody out and it, it's covered by this cost, right? Your premium has gone up because you have this insurance. As part of that, this person's going to come out and they're going to help you. And they're going to review the various things that you've got going on, make some suggestions for some changes. And that seems like the kind of thing insurance companies want to do because it would actually save them money. <laughs> well, it could potentially save the customer money as well in that well, yeah, in the sense that, you know, if you, if we run an audit on your security systems and you fail, yeah. your price is this much. If yes. you correct it, your premiums go down by some percentage, you know, those kinds of yep. Incentives to do a better job at security, it makes sense. And the incentives have to be something more than just bad publicity. I mean, it really does have to be something that affects the company's bottom lines. Anyway, now let's we should we probably shouldn't exit this topic without at least briefly talking about individual ransomware kind of things, how people can avoid ransomware because people obviously right they're worried about that right you know what happens what if it happens to me and my computer you know at home right so your um, answer of course is get a mac <laughs> well there's still things you can do you know there's still i mean the biggest thing and i i i can predict the biggest thing you're going to say is backup there is but that's a re- it turns out to be a really interesting and somewhat thorny mm-hmm. issue because mm-hmm. malware ransomware specifically, has become more sophisticated. And it is starting to occasionally look for and encrypt backups. So what that means is if you do the right thing and you've got an automated nightly backup going on, you've got your external hard drive to contain it, one day you are infected with ransomware, And all of a sudden you find that not only is your machine no longer usable or your pictures or your documents or your whatevers are all encrypted, so is your backup. So you have no way of restoring your machine to the state it was in prior to the ransomware infection. Now, there are a couple of of recommended solutions for that. Uh, the, The recommendation I hear all the time that I absolutely do not agree with is don't leave your backup drive connected. In other words... Only plug in the backup drive when you make a backup. In theory, makes absolute sense. Yeah. In practice, ain't going to happen. Yeah, I agree with you. I, we're all going to forget. We're Mm going to be like a month or two months down the road. We will remember, you know, I should probably do a backup. It just doesn't work that way. My recommended approach, I actually have two. One, it works for everybody. That's very simple. Keep the automated backups happening. Absolutely, don't change a thing. Every once in a while, then, go and take a copy of your backup and take that copy, 
offline. Copy that to a different external drive, put that in a closet, disconnect that, whatever. That way, your individual backups, your ongoing backups are no longer dependent on your memory. Yes, the the ransomware protection backups, of course, they are dependent on your on your memory. And you can set yourself a reminder or whatever. But honestly, you are way, way, way more likely to be impacted by a non-ransomware related issue than you are ransomware. And what that means is by having all of these backups happening automatically without having to think about it, you're protected from all of those with just this extra safety net for ransomware. Now, the other one actually involves a product recommendation. Um, Macquarie Reflect is one of the big players in the backup space. They actually tend to target small business and slightly larger, but they've got a really good uh, backup program. It's one of the two that I recommend regularly. I'm recommending it a little bit more often these days because they actually implemented a feature specifically targeted to protect your backups from ransomware. What it boils down to is they play with the file permissions on the backup images that they've created and tweak them such that only their tool and a couple of others Mm. can even touch the backups. So the malware that comes along, even if it's got full administrative privileges, it's not going to be able to uh, encrypt the backup images that you've got stored there. They call it image guardian or something like that, but it's it's actually a, a very good and reasonable solution that is essentially the best of both worlds. It basically lets you continue your automated backups in an ongoing fashion while then also protecting those backups, taking extra steps to protect those backups from uh, from malware or, or ransomware that might come along and try to uh, encrypt them. Hmm. Of course, the, the the other thing that I keep pushing back on people who, who are worried about ransomware, they're worried about ransomware. Oh my God, what about ransomware? Ransomware is just malware. Hmm. That's all it is. It's just malware. I don't mean to minimize that, but it's just another kind of malware. The thing that makes ransomware stick stick out, of course, is that it has this dramatic impact, right? It's particularly damaging malware, but it's just malware. So everything you're already doing, everything you already should be doing uh, to keep yourself safe from malware in general is going to keep you safe from ransomware because it's just malware. So that's one of the things that I try and focus on people too. What we keep hearing of late is that the number one entry point of malware into almost any system these days, be it a personal or a corporate environment, is email, either email attachments, malicious email attachments that get opened and then allow malware to be installed, or uh, phishing links where individuals click on something that you know they they think they're logging into PayPal, but they're not. They think they're logging into something else, but they're not. Uh, they are handing over their credentials to a hacker, and then the hacker has free reign to do whatever. So basically, the thing to do to stay safe from ransomware is to stay safe from malware in general. Yeah, um, yeah of course, that is like the main thing. I was trying to think of uh, other ways. Um, one way, you know, we we're talking about the thin client before with the doctor's office yes. uh, idea, and it also kind of works for a lot of online backup solutions. So when you have a local backup, you know, your Windows local backup or your Time Machine backup on your Mac, it's a drive connected to your Mac, and soft ransomware could theoretically encrypt not only your files on your drive but also your backup. 
Right. It's it's incorrect to kind of say, will ransomware do this? Well, it depends who wrote the, you know, if they wrote right. the ransomware to do it, it would do that. But, yep. you know, it's it's more work. It's 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 not like, you know, you there's a, you know, ransomware function is coding and then it does all this stuff. It's like you would have to build that into the ransomware to encrypt your backup and make it part of the ransom as it were. And doing that on the local backup, of course, is a danger, you know, that good or good is a weird word to use, but, you know, (laughs) well-crafted ransomware would do that. Now, an online backup is interesting because your computer really doesn't have direct access to the files in an online backup. You're going through some sort of, uh, you have some sort of software installed, like I have Backblaze on my, my Mac. So the only communication between my Mac and the Backblaze server is through the Backblaze software, right? The Mac isn't talking directly to it. And then it's sending it over the internet. And then on the other end, there's software there on the other end as well that's receiving this data and then storing it. So it's not the kind of thing where it would be easy for software like ransomware to be written to also infiltrate the the backup software on your Mac, which then would send... Uh, it would have to do more than just send bad copies to the backup because you would have, you know, you have a kind of a history uh, there. So you could always say, oh, my most recent backup is is corrupt, but I could roll it back and say, I want the, the you know, my online backup from yesterday. Um, it would have to do a lot more work, like a ton more work, like probably never worth it to ransomware developers to actually figure out how to also affect your online backup. So online backups are a way kind of like they're related to what you said about, you know, having a backup that every once in a while you connect and disconnect, um, you know, as a secondary backup. It's kind of like that's what an online backup is. You know, once every three hours, however often it is, it connects, it adds some more files to it, and then it disconnects. But it's even more so in that you can't delete files or change files on an online backup, at least not very easily from that computer so the the one related scenario um, mm-hmm. as long as you're keeping the incremental changes for a long yeah. period of time yes online backups like that are fantastic that's that is another good way of doing it the other scenario that scares people are tools like dropbox and onedrive because mm-hmm. they of course notice when a file has changed yeah upload that file to the cloud they then download it to all your other machines so that if, for example, ransomware comes along and uh, encrypts your OneDrive documents folder and everything in it, that encrypted file gets replicated to all these other places, overwriting the unencrypted file. Uh-huh. That scares a lot of people. Yeah, rightfully so. It's true for uh, it's true for any of these file synchronization tools, be it Dropbox or OneDrive or even iCloud or some iCloud, of the I did a video a long time ago uh, because so many people refer to iCloud as a backup. I'm backing up through iCloud is what people will tell me. Oh, I see. Yep. Um, and I, you know, I so I did a video saying iCloud is not a backup. Right. <laughs> you know, and and, all, and saying that in some ways it is. You know, and so if you if you have a MacBook and it falls into the river <laughs> and everything was on an iCloud, then it does act very much like a, a, sure. a really good backup. You get a new brand new MacBook, you sign into iCloud, boom, all your files are there, you know, better than a backup because then you don't have to do anything. But in other ways, like, um, you know, having, not having these incremental changes. And also if something were to, 
you know, if either you were to delete, to delete the files yourself or malware was to delete the files, uh, you know, iCloud, Dropbox, OneDrive, all that aren't going to help you like a well, true online backup. Well, well um, I was, that's, that's actually exactly where I was headed. Okay. Um, as it turns out, both OneDrive and Dropbox, and this may be specific to a, a feature that gets added if you've got a, a paid plan or a paid plan of a certain level, but... I have gotten these wonderful messages from OneDrive, an email message that says, hey, we just noticed that a few hundred files have changed. Was that intentional? In my case, of course, it was. I deleted a bunch of stuff. They actually have two things that I find incredibly valuable. One is they both have a recycle bin, which means that if you delete a file, then for some amount of time, you can still go back online. You have to go to the website, but you can go to the website, go to the recycle bin and restore that file from X number of days ago. iCloud has that too. Yep. And they've got a restore to point in time. Yeah. What that means is that if, for example, you get impacted by ransomware, then, and all of your files in Dropbox or OneDrive or both, if you're like me and use them both, uh, get encrypted, you can then go online and say, you know what, what's in there right now, toss it away. I would like you to restore my Dropbox or my OneDrive to the state it was in before, you know, on this date and time. Um, that, yes, that's a backup, absolutely. But it's actually um, a side effect, something that they were able to add to these utilities because of the way that they were getting used. And I'm sure because disk space uh, for them especially is becoming so incredibly cheap. I always reviewed uh, tools like Dropbox and OneDrive and iCloud and so forth as file copy and synchronization utilities that happen to be, you, you could use as backups as opposed to some of the other tools there where, um, you know, yes, this is a dedicated backup program and you may or may not be able to use it to copy files and share things, but that's not its point, right? Its focus is backing up. Anything else is, is gravy. Whereas with the file sharing programs, that's their job in life. That's their role is to be able to copy and share files. And if you can tack a backup on there, which you can, that's additional functionality that they weren't originally designed for. Yep. Yep. So there's something that's great to hear that uh, OneDrive has that. I'd love to, uh, at some point, see iCloud Drive get that same functionality, be able to roll back in addition to be able to look at that kind of that 30 day trash right. the recycle file. bin. I was thinking about it when I was talking, when I was th- earlier, uh, when I was going to talk about the, uh, the ability to roll back to a date. It's, I think to me, it's a reflection of the fact that ransomware hasn't really impacted the Mac community that much. And I'm mm. sure that if it did, if it were uh, the kind of a thing that uh, was more prevalent, more common uh, and uh, impacted uh, uh, iCloud files tr- effectively or dramatically, mm. uh, it's a feature that I'm sure they would add pretty quickly. It's, 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 It's clearly a feature parity thing, but right now they can stake the claim that, well, we don't really need it because ransomware is not that big a problem over here. I suspect that some of the functionality, if maybe not all of it, is already there because obviously there's the thing, if you delete a file, it's there for 30 days. So there's that. And also in some of the versioning stuff with a lot of the Mac apps, Mm -hmm. um, that's connected to iCloud. Like if I save a pages document to iCloud, 
Mm-hmm. And I, I work with it every day for 60 days. And I say, oh, I want to roll back to a previous version, or I want to grab a piece of text out of a previous version. Um, that's connected to iCloud. Like I could go to my other machine, mm-hmm. say, bring up the previous, you know, the the previous versions of this document, browse the versions, and go back, and I will see it actually have briefly say loading from iCloud cool. as I go through those versions. Yeah. Which means for some files already, it has previous versions in there. So there might already be like. You know they've they've taken care of it on the server side, right. and if they need to, in some future version, they could jump to a oh here's now a function that lets you roll everything back yep. three days or a week or whatever. Yep, yep, yep. Mm. It may very well be that all that infrastructure is already there. It's just a matter of tying yeah. it together. Cool. Anyway, I think so, we've uh, yeah we've given people a lot to think about. Uh, yeah, not maybe answers. <laughs> ransom, ransomware yeah. in a nutshell. You know, keep playing safe is the is the big takeaway. Yep. But. Um, it's uh, it's an interesting. What I find fascinating is where will it head next. Um, I do yeah. think that uh, the the pipeline, regardless of whether the pipeline itself was shut down directly due to ransomware, it exposes some of the vulnerability that our infrastructure has, whether it be a pipeline, whether it be the electrical grid, whether it be something else. Uh, I think that we will be seeing a few more of these, and hopefully, each one will. Give us, you know, each each one will be to a new due to a new mistake rather than repeating the mistakes of the old. Okay, cool. All righty. So uh, let's see. Ain't it cool? So I finished. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago the Nevers. Yeah. Finished that last night, and uh, it's on HBO Max, and it's it's fascinating. It is set in the Victorian era. It is a lot of what appears to be magic. There are individuals who are quote unquote touched and have, uh, you know, superhuman powers, I guess you would call them. But the way the story has evolved, there's a twist, of course. And it is, it's exactly the twist that I thought it would be. Unfortunately, I can't really say what that twist is right now without giving away a lot of, uh, of the storyline because it was revealed very incrementally with a number of flashbacks. Um, and in one case, um, a very powerful flash forward that I think uh, did a good job of, of very carefully keeping you on that cusp of confusion, right? Mm-hmm. There's this cuspus confusion where you're watching a story and you're just wondering, what the heck? What the heck? What the heck? Oh, right. So it's it. they did a nice job of, of storytelling. It's confusing for a number of people. I'm not sure that everybody will enjoy that aspect of it. It is six episodes. Uh, my wife uh, did a little bit of research and found that it's actually the first half of a 12-episode season, I guess. But they have not set a date for the second half. The first half was enjoyable and definitely left on a cliffhanger, and I'm hoping it'll come back. Hmm, cool. Uh, let's see. I just uh, finished reading a book called A Beautifully uh, Foolish Endeavor, which is the sequel to a book called An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, uh, both written by uh, kind of internet celebrity Hank Green, um, who's famous for various different uh, podcasts and YouTube channels, things like that. Anyway, he wrote uh, two uh, sci-fi-ish books, um, which not only deal with kind of a, a sci-fi uh, story of uh, maybe 
kind of a first contact kind of situation. But uh, the whole subtext there is all about kind of internet celebrity. Um, you know, with not not saying internet celebrities are good or bad or you know have it easy or have it hard, but basically saying it's complex being an internet celebrity. So mm -hmm. he's kind of taking some of his own experience and then, you know, having these characters that uh, have to deal with um, suddenly becoming internet famous uh, amidst this kind of alien sci-fi story happening on earth. Anyway, they are very fun, easy to read books, uh, very, you know, page turners, as you would say. Mm -hmm. So definitely start with the first one, uh, beautifully foolish endeavor and, um, and then, uh, the, you know, the sequel that just came out that continues that story. Cool. Cool. Mm -hmm. I may have to go take a look at that. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Pointing you at my website this week, I would like, it, it ties in actually quite nicely to the ransomware discussion. Uh, I recently refreshed an article, Security, It's a Spectrum, Not a State. It's askleo.com slash 16029. One of the questions I get, and I'm sure you get the same question, is, you know, if I do this, will this make me secure? The answer is always no, because there is no such thing as secure. There's only more secure more, more. or less secure, right? Mm -hmm. There is no such thing as an absolute state of security. Um, and I think that's really important for people to understand and to realize as they go about making their decisions about, uh, you know, what, what, what emails to open, what software to run, what software to install, that kind of stuff. So security, it's a spectrum, not a state. Mm -hmm. Well, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the, a lot of security experts and uh, people like us, I'm sure too, have sometimes thrown our hands up in the air and said, well, just disconnect your computers, turn them off, put them <laughs> in a closet and never use them again. There, you wanted your security. That's how you achieve it. No, they're um, not still not secure because now they've got all their banking paper, banking paperwork laying around their table when the uh, comes <laughs> in, right? That's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I usually uh, link to a, a current video, but since we mentioned it, I'll link to an older video from last year iCloud is not a substitute for a time machine backup. Awesome. Um, so that, uh, yeah, there's a reference to the, what I mentioned there. Yeah, I like that. That makes a whole lot of sense. Cool. All righty. I think that pretty much wraps us up for this week. The show yep. notes are out at tehpodcast.com slash teh134. Special side note, thank you to Connie, who's been uh, doing our editing and updating of these notes and the webpage and so forth for us each week. Thank you, Connie. Uh, if you've Thank got you. a comment or a question for us, be sure and find us on Facebook or Twitter at The TEH Podcast, or you can leave a comment on that aforementioned show notes page. Until next time, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.